Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. This is High Tea with Grace, where we spill the tea on HIT. I'm super stoked to welcome Dr. Sonia Sloan, who is an orthopedic surgeon. She is a healthcare leader and author. And on top of it all, she uses her talents to help the indigenous communities of New Mexico. So we're very excited to learn from her today. Welcome, Dr. Sloan. Thank you so much, Grace. It's so nice to finally meet you. So nice to meet you too. So tell me, what drew you into orthopedic surgery? I was an athlete. So gymnastics, cheerleading, um, track and field. I did a little bit of uh, golf, tennis, you know, sort of everything. And uh, I hurt my knee uh, my senior year on the hurdles. So my mom was a nurse and I got to hang out with the orthopedic, you know, uh, surgeon that was taking care of me. And he was such a great guy. And he was actually the one that said, you know, we need more women in orthopedic surgery. And so unbeknownst to me, I had no idea it was not, you know, sort of like a even <clears throat> for for men and women had no clue. But I grew up in a place, a small town USA, Denison, Texas, North Texas. So I never saw a black doctor. And I never saw a female doctor growing up. And so it wasn't until I got to college to got to got to hang out with someone. But his experience, my experience with him really influenced the idea, the concept that, um, you know, sort of treat someone and they get better. And it's it's a great way to practice medicine. I, lo- I love that aspect of it. And um, mentors do count. Definitely. Wow. So what was residency like then in this historically male dominated, white male dominated field with just men breaking bones left and right? And <laughs> you're a woman so I will, coming I, in. I don't want to discourage anyone in the of sense course of, not, of it's, course, the, yes. it's the it's a male field, dominate field with 94 percent being uh, wow. men and six percent being women. Um, 1.5% being African-American, less than that for um, Hispanics. And for Black women orthopedic surgeons, we're less than the 0.6.7%. So it can be done. It's about technique. It's about skill. It's about using your brain, you know, work harder, work smarter, not harder kind of thing. Um, And I always tell my patients that uh, uh, with enough uh, anesthesia and right positioning and manipulation, anything can be done even by a woman. So don't, don't let that scare you. Wow. Wow. That is 
totally wild and so amazing to to be a part of that field and really breaking the glass ceiling there. Um, I would love to learn more about the type of work that you're doing with the indigenous communities in New Mexico. Um, What are what exactly are you involved with there? So I got into this about almost five years ago. A government contract with Comp Health is a you know a locum tenens company. Locum tenens is when you're a traveling physician, and you can sort of pick and choose what you want to do, where you want to go. And uh, I'm at a, a point in my life where it was about I, I need to make sure what I'm doing really counts. Mm-hmm. And so the government contract with the Indian Health Service, the largest Indian reservation in the country, was just the, the right you know, position for me to make it count. And I only do seven to 10 days a month, um, days out of the month there. But these are the patients that, um, for the lack of a better word, have just, you know, been given a bad, um, um, lot in life. I mean, it's it's like almost almost like just disproportionate to what everyone else got, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, your heart goes out to them, and you realize they're a disadvantage, and so they don't trust very easily. Mm-hmm. Um, so the consistency of being there really, really does help because now I've treated like three generations in one family: the grandma, the mom, and the kids, you know. Uh, but it, it, they appreciate people that are sincere, people that are genuine, mm-hmm. as well as they know that you're coming there for a reason. It's not just for money or not, not just a contract and that you're coming back because you care. And it makes mm-hmm. a difference in how you treat a patient and how they participate in their care, uh, as well as the the relationship that goes along, not just with that family, but it's such a close, tight-knit organ, um, um, uh, reservation that the word gets out of like, oh no, she's a good doc or we, we like her or, or whatever. And so then you have a flood of customers if you will, patients yeah. uh, that will come to you open, open hearted and, and willing to listen to you and what you say. And then uh, uh, it's been an honor to learn some of the traditions of medicine with them, because some of the things that even as an African-American in our culture of, of, of being respectful of, of, of your your prayer life or your spirituality and stuff like that, it's another level for them. And so learning some of that, being respectful of that and honoring it has has been um, just truly humbling. Definitely. Wow. What an experience. And, and how has technology been used to improve care and outcomes in the indigenous community? Is there virtual care? Uh, how exactly has technology played a role in, in care, especially during the pandemic and and in this particular community? So I think telemedicine was introduced uh, during this whole COVID session, I believe in March of 2020, we'd set up the initial tents um, for the shot uh, for vaccine, I mean, um, for testing, and Mm -hmm. they were leery. They didn't want to come out. Mm-hmm. A lot of them were afraid of what was going to happen. Everyone was watching what was going on, on the television, you know, so uh, it was sort of a scary time for that population. And there was definitely a CNN special where they documented at the same time we were seeing what was happening in New York. The indigenous people, their mortality rate was 30 percent higher than anyone else. And it was because, you know, they live on a reservation. There is no running water in some of those places. So how do I wash my hands for 30 seconds? And I have three generations living in one household that it doesn't spread. And, you know, sadly, it definitely devastated uh, that community. But also when the vaccine was available, they were also the highest percentage of people that got vaccinated first. Wow. Wow. And amazing to be a part of that, too, and to yeah. see that how much the vaccine impacted that whole yeah. community, yeah. considering how terribly it was impacted by the pandemic. 
So they had telemedicine, but telemedicine was more phone based than it really was true telemedicine, which is usually a virtual component of television kind of thing. Um, so their system was not set up. And so now you see the system changing to accommodate a lot of that. But definitely um, into 2020 to 2021, the advantage of using a telephone to be able to call patients and try to walk through with them to make sure they didn't need to come in and, and that kind of thing. But I will say that a lot of people did get lost in the you know through the cracks, um, mm. not just in on the Indian reservation in, in, you know, the world because people were hesitant to go in. Uh, mm-hmm. People avoided just general checkup stuff that we should have been doing mm-hmm. as well as minor things were put off for a long period of time. You know, I just recently did a patient's carpal tunnel and uh, release and, and he had been waiting for two years. He had been previously on the list to have surgery then, mm-hmm. you know, so it made it worse. His symptoms had gotten worse and more severe. And so recovery is going to be longer. So there's ramifications of this that we're not even accounting for yet. Yeah. And what are some challenges that you're finding to other challenges? Are there tech challenges, other challenges that you are having in serving this community um, that are unique to this community versus others that, you know, that that you might have in other communities? Yeah, so Wi-Fi definitely is an issue, right? So mm-hmm. you're mm-hmm. out in the middle of New Mexico, four corners, Arizona, Utah, Colorado, and, and New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And lots of parts of the reservation, they may not have running water or electricity, let alone Wi-Fi. So therefore, true, how do you true. do something like telemedicine, which again, and worse, good service for their telephones. Um, and then just the financial piece of it uh, that that lends to not having the capacity to do what they would need to do on the technology side. So you're missing, not missing a generation, but it's definitely lagging behind this generation. Yeah. And what are things that could be done to improve that? Is there is there legislation that could be changed, reimbursement models that could be changed? Like, what do you see as the solution to that? This is a it's a government model, you know, and so yes. you have mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, the financial side of what the government is paying the indigenous uh, Navajo Nation to provide care. There's a different um, uh, organization within that network that's possibly more more successful, but they're almost independent, and so therefore their financial gains are not the same. So to revamp all of that, you're talking about the bureaucracy and the the red tape, to be honest. So it's just going to take time to process that. Uh, the hospital I'm at right now does need, and they're talking about building a brand new hospital. But just to do that in a government facility, you're talking probably another 10 years. So imagine a 50-year-old hospital now trying to build something in the next 10 years, and they're still going to be behind. Within the hospital, you have people that are tech-savvy, um, you know, I tell patients about apps and other things, and then sometimes they will find ways to go around even the Indian health service, but can get them to pay for it later on. So, you know, like oh, I say, I always oh. say, talk about get a second opinion. If mm-hmm. it's something that we can't provide, they have that luxury or that courtesy to, you know, find someone else and get a second opinion or maybe a procedure or something like that. And hopefully the Indian health service will reimburse that provider and or that service. So there are other means. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so great that you can give them that advice too, when they come to you, we need more, more, uh, ideas of what's going on here. Can you help us figure out how to manage this given the lack of financial and other resources? Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So tell us about your book, The Rules of Medicine. Mm. Uh, 
What's the premise of the book? I want to hear all about it. So I uh, started this book in 2016. I finished it was 10 years after my residency. And the idea concept was there's things that you hear in medicine, um, little antidotes like, you know, see one, do one, teach one, you know, and that's not just for medicine that carries across a lot of different genres of uh, professional occupations. But there are some that are specific to medicine that we hear and we go in one ear and out the other and that even the newcomers never hear or by the time they hear it, it's almost too late. So the idea was to compile all of these um, medical isms to uh, help nursing students, medical students, uh, PT, OT, you know, PAs as they're going through school, as well as going through the process of actually learning and being young in the field. Uh, and even some of the old heads as reminders of, you know, um, you know, be the patient sometimes. Be the patient is about bedside manners and that just never goes out of style. Uh, and there's those short little stories that teach a lesson and give some bullet points on how to improve or be successful in this field. And surprisingly, it's uh, been really a big success. I'm almost at 10,000 books, but more so because um, we forget, you know, we get so busy and it's like, what, wait, Am I supposed to remember to see one, do one, teach one? Okay. And then, oh, miracles still do happen. What? You know, or mm -hmm. uh, my favorite is rule 34, pay it forward. How can I help the next generation benefit from what I've had to go through in the past 20 years of medicine? Mm -hmm. It's to write a book and let you know what you need to be doing. Oh, I love that. And, and since you've written the book, I'm sure things pop up and you're like, oh, that's a great one. Have you been thinking about doing a part two? To this yes, well? of course. And I have people that send them to. That's what's hilarious to me. I mean, like oh. I'll get more inboxes from on TikTok and, and uh, Instagram about, hey, did you think about this one? Or did you, what about, you know, it's like, oh yeah, that's definitely, you know, to add to it. But um, I think at some point to, to add a part two or a revision, definitely. That's really neat. Well, we'll definitely be sure to share that with our audience. We'll definitely be sure to share that with our audience when that one comes out. Yes. Um, so I'm wondering from the technology side now going into your orthopedic world, are there certain technologies you think could have a huge impact on orthopedics five years, 10 years, 15 years down the road, mm -hmm. maybe at home PT or other things that you think could potentially have an impact on the field? Uh, yes, technology is huge for the future of medicine and specifically for orthopedics and one that I just love and I know it's it's going to be even more impactful and you see it at a lot of the medical shows and specifically surgical places is uh, virtual reality augmented reality mm -hmm. so my son has an oculus you know so it's like where it submerges you within a field metaverse that, yeah. yeah it's like a metaverse mm -hmm. right so there's different um, you have the virtual reality was just like you go into, you submerge yourself into that. Then you have augmented reality, which is what is live right now. But then there's something that's animated that I can see, that I can touch, that I can manipulate. So that's the surgical side that's going to help benefit to teach students to, you know, uh, master other techniques and surgical procedures and minimize some of the complications that may happen long term. So just imagine being able to overlie an x-ray of a patient while I'm operating so the incision could be this small versus this big, you know, um, that kind of thing. And then, of course, AI, AI, where the automated intelligence is going to continue to grow in medicine. Now, I do. Um, my disclaimer is that medicine probably lags almost 10 years, um, partly because we almost want the research and the data to be sufficient to make it viable for patients, um, but also the cost. And so with as in anything in technology, the cost when it's new and on the field, um, 
you have to, it has to be absorbed someplace. And a lot of places in medicine um, from insurance companies, hospitals, doctor's offices don't have that built in yet. And so that's the business model of adapting to technology long-term, even for computer software updates for medical records, you know, electronic health records and stuff. We're, we're just not where we should be probably compared to a lot of other places in the world. But AI is definitely here to stay. It's not going anywhere. It's going to increase. It's going to change the name of medicine, the game of medicine in the next 10 years, 15 years. Uh, and virtual reality, augmented reality specifically, will be more utilized in the teaching mechanisms of uh, students um, across the board, as well as how we do surgeries, I believe, and other things. Wow, very interesting. I am very interested in VR and its potential impacts on the space. And I think you're so right in just education, like learning how to do what you're going to be doing and practicing. It's so critical. Yeah. It's VR seems to be like the 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 robots of of yesteryear, you know. I know. <laughs> the but robots it's here. started coming out. That was amazing. How cool it's we can here. see this one. Yeah. It's here. It's not going anywhere and it's just going to improve and get better. And so as we implement it, and I think programs specifically, if I'm telling someone where they're going to maybe want to look at residency or medical school or nursing school or whatever else, look at that, that piece of technology, having that um, while you're training is so important right now for the future. Wow. Very, very cool. So let's move on to your personal life. Okay. What are some things that you do to work your best and make a difference? I know you have a family and a life outside of being just a total superstar. <laughs> so tell me, how do you stay on top of it all? So someone asked me one time, how do you, you know, can women have it all? You know, that whole, um, that old adage of, can we really have it all? And I do, I do believe you can have it all at different times and different spaces in your life, you know? So that is basically um, picking and choosing what's important for you at different aspects and different times in your life. And so, you know, at, my kids are 16, 14 and 10. So at that time period, me having children was the most important thing. Uh, residency was prior to that. Medical school was prior to that. And that at that time in my life was the most important thing. Um, and so now I'm on the other end and it's like, I want to make an impact in different areas of my life. And so how does that occur is I have to pick and choose what I want to do. So my time and my energy and my efforts are very, very important to me. Um, so that's about boundaries. That's about learning to say no. Um, I believe everyone should have their own mission statement for their life. And so if there's things that you do, like I, I love education and uh, STEM stuff. I love surgical, anything that is orthopedics and medicine health-wise. And then I'm a spiritual person. My husband is a pastor. We have a mega church here in Houston, over 5,000 members. And then so enlightening people in a spiritual aspect of how their health and their spirituality um, go together, that is, those are my missions. And so if I find something or someone approaches me and they do, and it doesn't fall within those things, I don't do it. And so before it was like, I can do everything. It's like, no, you want to hone in on what is your niche and what you really want to give your life's energy towards. And so that's where I'm at. I have a great spouse. My husband, Timothy Sloan, is awesome to be my pastor and my my husband's kids. And, you know, um, he's super dad as well. So even when I'm traveling, he is you know, here taking care of them as well as a, a great provider for me so I can do some other things. <clears throat> and then I have a network of people. You have to have uh, Uber Eats and 
Instacart and uh, have an, a housekeeper that's going to come in and clean the house and find a laundry service and all of those things that we're almost taught young that you're supposed to do it all as a woman. And that was a lie, <laughs> but you can definitely pay for it and, and make your life so much easier. And so learning to ask for help and or if not, find it and pay for that help is is definitely the way to go. And so I don't want women um, to see themselves as having to do it all. To do it all doesn't mean you can have it all. To have it all means you need to bring in some outside resources to make it happen. So, so true and so encouraging for our listeners to hear from someone like you who it does. <laughs> it's like, you have it all, you do it all. Um, I also see that you're founder of the God's Women Rock, um, which is very hit like a girl-esque. Yes. And so we're wondering, um, you know, why is supporting and encouraging and mentoring women in particular important to you? Uh, that's a passion. I guess started that as a Black woman that didn't have the mentors, uh, as well as People see you get to a certain level in life and they look up to you, but they don't have anyone. You don't have that mentor pouring back into you. So, I, you know, I call it your tribe. Whoever's your tribe of five, six or whatever, that small circle that are higher than you or on above your level that can help you. But then that pay it forward pieces, I also have to help these other women. And so the God's Women Rock and my other nonprofit that was motivating empowering women was really about empowering them to have their own businesses, their own books, their own organizations, and teaching them how to do that in a cost savvy kind of way, but also um, pushing them to say, you can do this. You know, we're told so many times that you can't, and we forget how incredible we are as women that uh, every now and then it's just a matter of someone saying, eh, you got this, keep going, you got it. You know, what, what, do, what is it that you want? You know, and, and reminding women to define their mission, um, declare their, their passion, and be unapologetic about it, you know? Let's just go for it because you have a very short amount of time on this earth and uh, you don't wanna look back and say, I wish I could have, you know? So, so true and, and absolutely fantastic advice. Now, to finish this conversation off right, where can our listeners find you online? I am Sonia Sloan, S-O-N-Y-A-S-L-O-A-N-M-D on all platforms, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, uh, Facebook. Yes. <laughs> awesome. And before I forget, did you happen to bring tea with you today? I have coffee. Ah, <laughs> tell me about your mug. It's amazing. Uh, and I'm not sure if you knew this. I started off as an entrepreneur uh, at age 23. I had my first business called Not Just Coffee. Um, which was coffees, beans, teas, uh, and pastries, sandwiches. And it was a little coffee house in Sherman, Texas. And we all opened it after I didn't get into medical school. I got waitlisted my first year. So uh, my husband was at Princeton and I'd gone up to visit him. We were dating at the time and went to all these wonderful little coffee houses. And I came back to Texas area and it was just as like Starbucks and Seattle Coffee and you know uh, uh, Caribou, all of these were starting to, really reach out and, and branch out. Uh, and my mom was like, well, we don't have a coffee house. What are, what are you talking about? I'm like, we have an IHOP. We have a Denny's. We have a, I'm like, what? You have two major colleges, junior colleges in this town and all the churches and people just need a place to hang and have their coffee and have conversations that are meaningful and not have to pay a hundred dollars for a meal to do that. You know? So I borrowed $50,000, learned to write a business plan, 
and consulted with different people and learned to talk and ask questions and learned as I went, but opened my first business at the age of 23. And since then I've had multiple other businesses, uh, but that was definitely my passion. And so this was one of my teacups in my Uh, coffee house from that is fantastic. You Um, know, the tea more than any else, anyone else would know. Yes. 1994. And, um, I do love some teas. I'm a chamomile type of person. Uh, but I love Jamaica blue mountain coffee. It is one of the Mm. best coffee beans. So smooth, just the right acidity, all of that kind of stuff that, um, that it's one of my passions, not cheap, but is definitely worth the cup. That is too good. I love that story. And thank you so much for sharing about the the New Mexico indigenous community, about orthopedics and all that you're doing to mentor women. We're so grateful to have people like you really leading in this space. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. And thank you folks for joining us too. Check out the Hit Like a Girl podcast website and YouTube page for more great guests like Sonia today. Cheers. Cheers. Like a Girl Media is more than a media network. It's a community. We want to meet you and amplify your voice and the voices of outstanding women innovating in healthcare. Interested in starting your own podcast or hosting an event near you? Connect with us online or in person. We're here to support and empower you. 